0: I got to have gorgonzola last night in risotto. Uh, a good, a delightful friend of ours, all the way from Milan, Italy, has been cooking for us for the last week and a half, and we are blessed. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, she's um, been going down to commercial, to, you know, Little Italy in Vancouver, and buying the ingredients and cooking uh, p- homemade. Italian-style pizza, uh, risotto, all of these things, and I am gaining weight. (laughs) I'm (laughs) I'm telling you. But I'm enjoying it. (laughs) So, um, yeah, good things happening, and God wants to feed us tonight. God, I believe, has prepared something for us. He wants to prepare something for us every day to feed us spiritually, to... um, not just fatten us up spiritually, but to give us strength, to grow us, to cause us to thrive. And we've been, this word, the flourishing last days church. That word flourishing means to thrive. It means to grow strong. It means to have strength. And it comes from uh when you look at the root of the word the word flower it's connected to you know to flourish means to flower and so you know when something is flowering usually it's because there's vitality in it there's life in it and it often in certain plants anyway points to fruit is coming you know when we see our plum trees in the backyard they the number of blossoms that are on them great that means there's going to be fruit and um, so flourishing is thriving. To be vigorous and healthy, I want to flourish. I want the church, the last day's church, our church, to be vigorous and healthy. To, and it also means this. This is a, one of those, I, I, I'm a bit of a word geek. I like the dictionary. I, you know, kind of find it exciting. One of the definitions of flourish is to grow luxuriantly. Isn't that nice? I mean, I don't expect you'll go to the office tomorrow and throw that word around, grow luxuriantly, but that's what it means, luxuriant, not just the bare minimum, not survival, but luxuriant growth, it means over and above, uh, vigor, okay, the word flourish is to flower, I want us to blossom, I want us to flower, I want us to open up and be what God intends for us to be, amen, um, those flowers indicate vitality. And in these days that we're living in now, when the signs of the times are pointing to intensified rebellion against God and his people and intensified darkness and evil, when you hear the things going on in the world, there are things, it's not, it's, it's not all Fun and games. Amen? Anybody else notice that? It when, um, in these times, when all of that is going on, rather than scaling back or cowering from what needs to be done, rather than pulling back and saying, God, we just want to survive. We're just clinging, you know, we're white-knuckling it to the end. No. That's not what God intends. We ought to flourish in the last days. In fact, you know when you have your phone and it's really bright outside, it, if it's on that automatic, I don't know what they call it, but the screen gets brighter, right? So you can see it. But in the dark... I, I, you know, when you're reading your phone late at night, you can turn it down to the bottom setting because you don't need a lot. The, the contrast is so dramatic; you can see it. Well, right now, there's a contrast happening, and the church, we can, we can shine. We can shine in this hour rather than cower back and say, "Oh, the world is getting worse; it's getting dark." Let's just hang on. Let's just hold on for the end. No. We need more vitality. We need more spiritual life. We need life abundant in Christ to meet the challenge of this hour. Amen? amen? Somebody say amen. Not less. Not less life. We need more. God is God is not retreating. He's advancing. God's not looking at the end saying, oh, my goodness, these days, I don't know. It's getting dark. Let's... Let's hope we can make it through. (laughs) We're almost out of options. No, he's not out of options. He's got lots. And he wants us to advance. He wants us to go forward. He wants us to flourish. Amen? Somebody say, I intend to flourish. Tell your neighbor, flourish in these last days. Amen. Let's adopt the same mindset as God, that he's not retreating, he's advancing. And Paul's letter to this young church of the Thessalonians... Oh, somehow I... My Bible got flipped over here. Um, Paul's letter to this young Thessalonian church. This is a place in... uh, This was the first uh, incursion of the gospel into Europe, into the south of Europe. This is an area that would today be called Greece. This was a town named after Alexander the, the, the Great, the, the great Greek uh, ruler, uh, commander. His half-sister, is that's where this name Thessalonica comes from. So here Paul goes to this young church, sees people converted to Christ, and now he's speaking to them, sending this letter because they're new in the faith, and he's sending these things to answer their questions, and he commends them, for so many things. He speaks favorably, but later in the letter, you'll see twice in the fourth chapter, he says, you're already doing this, you're already doing that, but I urge you to excel still more. It's like, he it could be, wait, we're doing great, Paul, and he's not trying to say, you know, anything negative about what they've done, but he's saying, excel still more. We're never done, amen, until we cross and we're standing in the presence of Jesus. There's something more we can, we can give of ourselves to him to excel still more, and I intend to. All right, let's read it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 to 10. I'm going to read through it quickly, then summarize part of it, then hit the part that is for us tonight. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 1, 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. That's what I was talking about a moment ago. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. who rescues us from the wrath to come. Okay, I'm going to summarize verses two to eight. Paul and his team were thankful for the people in this city that they had reached with the gospel. And they're praying for them constantly, he says, and they celebrate the powerful way that the gospel impacted them. It was obvious that, he says, you're Um, work of faith, labor of love, your steadfastness of hope in Christ. It was evident by these things that these people had responded to the gospel in true faith and they were being transformed. And so he says they witnessed the kind of people that Paul and his companions were. They were able to see there's something about these people that lines up with what they're preaching. It doesn't make any It doesn't do any good if we tell people about Jesus, but our lives are horrible examples of him. What will happen? People will say, thanks, no, I don't want that. That's what they'll do, and they should do that. But here they were seeing in Paul and his companions a lifestyle that aligned with what they were preaching about this holy God who, out of love, sent his son to them. They saw it. And this infectious gospel, they heard these words and it produced the same favorable kind of transformation in them and they received it. They received it and it produced the same kind of good transformation, good change. And then again, when they went out and shared with the people of Macedonia and Achaia and wherever else they went, it says those who embraced it they made uh, uh, Christ known. They saw the change in these ones who had earlier been the audience. They're now the ones bringing the gospel to other people and their lives were transformed and people saw it. So then we get to verse 9 and it says, For they themselves, the people you presented the gospel to. If you back up in verse 8, it says, the word of the Lord sounded forth from you or rang out from you. And it says, the people who heard it, they themselves report about us what kind of a welcome or reception we had with you. What is he talking about there? People were talking about how the Thessalonians welcomed Paul and his company. And this wasn't simply a matter of hospitality that they treated them well as guests important as that is but they welcomed their purpose they welcomed their mission and they welcomed the message that they brought to them they didn't just welcome these guys as oh some visitors some tourists to Thessalonica no these people came with a message of life of transformation and they welcomed it they received it it says what kind of a reception they they gave you and they they received this message. God has sent His Son to make a way for imperfect, sinful people to have a relationship with a perfect, sinless God. That's the message. God has sent His Son to make a way for sinners to have a relationship, a, a true, living, intimate relationship with a perfect, sinless God. Jesus took the sin and punishment for sin, uh, and for sinful people, and made forgiveness available for all who would believe in him. That's what Jesus did. And making available a new eternal life in relationship with God. That's what Jesus did. That's what he came to do, to, to make a way for us to enter into that by faith. That's the message. That's why when... Ryan asked that question. Cherise said we receive Christ. Why? Because he's the one mediator between God and man who made that way. The one person who paid the price on the cross for us to be forgiven for all of our sins. Not just for our sins but to take to set us free from the rebellion, the propensity to sin. That thing inside of fallen human beings that always leans towards sin. He addressed that too. He took care of it. So, That's the message that Paul and his friends spoke and exemplified, modeled, embodied. And the Thessalonians welcomed them. They welcomed the message and the messengers that were living it and being transformed by it. Ultimately, this was an expression of receiving, welcoming God himself. You know how... Jesus said that. If they receive you, they receive me. If they receive me, they receive the Father who sent me. That's what it was. They turned to God, it says in verse 9, they, ha- they turned to God from idols to serve him and follow him and represent him and be involved themselves in the message and the mission that is more important than anything else in this world. In the end tally, nothing else matters nearly as much as having that relationship with the God of life. Because if we're out of line with him, we're out of line with life itself, with love itself, with him. So they got involved in that. They presented him and represented him. Okay, they turned from idols, it says in verse 9. They turned from idols or to God from idols, which are counterfeit gods they turned from unreal gods Uh, psalm 115 i'm going to just flip there for a second because this is kind of an exciting thing to just read to just hear what this says about idols listen to this in the psalm it says our god is in the heavens he does whatever he pleases that's the real living god then it says idols are silver and gold The work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. And listen to this. Those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. That's worse than useless. People who make those idols and put their trust in them will become like them. Eyes but they can't see, hands but they can't work, mouths that they can't speak, all of these things. He says these idols are counterfeit gods of human design. They're impotent and they're worse than useless. They, these people, the Thessalonians, turned from those diversions, from those distractions, from that falsehood. They turned from it to the living God, The living and true God, that means the real God, the God of reality. I want reality, amen? I want him. I don't want to, you know, kind of satisfy myself with a God of my own making that, oh, I'd like my God, I'm going to fashion him, and I'm going to make him like this. My God really likes this, and he likes that, and he likes this, and he likes that, and I design him. What does it matter if it's not real? I want the living and true God. He's better than any of that anyway. Anything we could possibly design for ourselves. They turned from idols to him to serve him. We don't just believe and hold him in our hearts. There's a tangible serving involved. These people actually followed him up. They actually followed him. What do we have to do to be saved? Like Ryan was saying. They, there's, we turn, we believe And then there's more, then there's more. Then we keep going, then we get discipled. There's more to do to follow him and serve him. And they'd already begun to express their faith in Christ by sounding forth the gospel in Macedonia and Achaia and other places to other people who were responding to the message of Christ in other cities. Application, God wants to do no less today with the disciples here in Richmond, here in the Lower Mainland. He wants us to turn from false gods, from empty things, from they're called vain or futile things like that, and turn to him. Amen? He wants no less from us to serve him that way. Now, faith in Christ impacts the here and now. Those people served him in their here and now. We serve him in our here and now. There are things to do. We're being transformed. We're we're, uh, involving ourselves in in presenting him and representing Jesus to others. But faith in Jesus also profoundly affects our future. We're looking forward. We're looking forward to what he's going to do. It isn't just about now, just about this time, right? Like us, the Thessalonians turned to God to serve him, And then it says in verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven. It already said in verse 3 that they had a steadfast hope. Hope is always looking forward. We don't hope for something that is now. We hope for the future. And here they're waiting for the return of God's son from heaven. Faith gives us a future. It gives us A glorious possibility for the future. In fact, that's the wrong way to say it. It's only a possibility that way uh, in terms of us responding to it. It's, It's a possibility. We can reject it or accept it. But when we do accept it, it's not just a possibility. That's why it's a steadfast hope. It's a sure hope, and we can anticipate the return of God's Son from heaven. The Thessalonians did this. They were waiting for the return of God's Son from heaven. It says the one he raised from the dead, that is Jesus. He came, he died for us on the cross, and was raised to life again. This is where the gospel begins to blow the competition away. As people have said, there's all these other things. People have died, and they're gone. But Jesus died, rose from the dead, and he's he's physically gone from the planet, but he's seated at the right hand of God, victorious over death, never to die again. Okay, our God wins. (laughs) our god wins that's it our savior came rose from the dead and is victorious over death he won't be touched by it again and here's the good news his victory over death is ours it's yours and mine by faith we receive him we get that victory over death we receive christ we get victory over death no question that his victory is ours he shares that with us. This is how you'll live forever. There's no fear of death for the people who respond in faith to Jesus. No fear of death. It can't touch us. Everlasting life is ours, is theirs in him. So we anticipate his return when, that is, when the consummation of all the ages takes place. And we now enter into his kingdom, and there 's none of this fallenness that is currently kind of ruling the day, so we anticipate his return from heaven, where he 's currently enthroned with glory and power and honor and all authority, but he 'll come back, and then he 'll set everything right. Now he promised in John fourteen one to three he promised his followers that he was prepared, he was going to the father to prepare a place for them. And that's for us too. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. And then he assures his disciples, says, if it wasn't so, I would have told you. Well, we can believe everything Jesus says, but Jesus himself, it's like he underlines it. Take note of this. If it wasn't the case, I would have told you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. It's like he knew who we are and how easily we can lose faith. He knew. So it's like, listen, I I just want you to know, if it wasn't so, I would have told you. And he underlines that because he knows how we can waver. As some people have said it, faith leaks. You know, we have faith for a while and then mm, it kind of drains away. But he says, if it wasn't so, I would have told you. And then he says, "Well, I believe in him. I believe in him." And he adds, "I will come again and receive you to myself, so that you may be where I am. So that where I am, you can be also. I'm coming again." Jesus said it. To imagine Peter and those guys—I don't doubt that they were somewhat clued out about what that meant. "I'm coming again." Oh, maybe he's going to leave town for a bit, and he's going—I don't know exactly what he meant, but. He said he's going to come back. I don't know if they really totally understood what he was talking about because again and again, they were just like us and they they saw in part and they didn't really get it. But now we know he has, he died, he rose from the dead, he ascended to the right hand of the Father where he's seated in glory and power and honor and he's coming again and he'll receive us to himself that we can be there with him. I want to be there with him. Amen. When the time comes, I will come again, receive it to myself so that you may be where I am. Jesus is coming back from heaven for us. There it is. That's simple. He's coming back for us. So we wait with expectancy. We wait with perseverance, with enthusiasm. And this very last phrase, this is the one. It's a double-edged sword. And we, to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Uh-oh. The wrath to come? That doesn't sound like good news. This is important to hear. And actually, it is part of the good news. It's good. Some of the preaching of our day is only ever positive I know the world likes that. A few years ago when Sophie was still in elementary and they would have like a talent show and there were songs, there were so many of them that the kids would sing. These songs, it would say things like, who says, who says you're not perfect? Who says you're, you know, this kind of stuff. And these messages about how you're perfect and how, you know, everything's great. Everything's great. Oh, you're, you know. I mean, I want to be an encouraging guy, and I I like people. I like being around them. I I usually see things that I I say usually because you know there's been a few, but I usually am very excited about people. I like them, but they're not perfect, right? And there there's something in the preaching of this hour that seems to be that God is only ever approving. God only ever approves of everything. A God who can be angry is kind of scary, especially if he has all power, all authority, and he knows everything. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. You know? He knows what you did last summer. (laughs) An angry God is not appealing. We don't want to preach an angry God, right? I'm okay with him being angry at Hitler and members of ISIS and the guy that cut me off on the road a few days ago. (laughs) But, you know, not regular people. And especially not moi, okay, when, when Jesus began his public ministry, after he'd been tempted in the wilderness, he, he, he came back to his hometown, it says he came to Nazareth, and he, he uh, preached his first sermon in the book of Luke that is recorded. He stood up and he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are downtrodden. I like that. Remember that he didn't just come to free people who had sinned but also to free us from the sins against us, too. You've been walked on a little bit. He wants to heal us and deliver us from that, too. To proclaim, he ends that, that message there, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Well, that sounds good. I like the favorable year of the Lord. This is also, you know, this is just so good and pleasant. It's like, bring it on, Jesus, we'll have the favorable year of the Lord. This is the hour that we're living in now. It has continued from Jesus' day to this, that we're in the hour of the favorable year of the Lord, up until now. But Jesus was quoting the prophet Isaiah in chapter 61, verses 1 to 3. And he didn't continue, he didn't finish that prophecy And the next line of Isaiah's prophecy, following the favorable year of the Lord, is the day of vengeance of our God. And it's not because that isn't part of the prophecy and it isn't real. He just didn't finish it there because there's this period from the favorable year. God's favor has been put out. This is the hour of his grace and mercy being extended to sinners to turn and receive and be set free. But there will be the day of vengeance of our God. I don't say that with any great relish, except that when it takes place, every right will be made wrong. All injustice will be taken care of. I am excited about that. That is good news. Because in this fallen world, have you noticed there's a lot of injustice? There's a lot of ugliness. There's a lot of stuff that it's just like when when's it going to when is that going to catch up with those evil people? When are they going to finally be found out? So, a few things very quickly about the wrath of God or the vengeance of God because I know that we're kind of uncomfortable with this kind of topic, but the the Bible writers were not. Do you know interesting fact? There is more mention of the wrath of God, anger of God, fury of God, vengeance of God than there is about the love and tenderness of God. Isn't that staggering? And is that because God leans more that way? No, but it means there is a, a there that is part of his nature. And in God, it's an attribute even. Okay, and I'll explain that. In the Bible... Wrath is there a lot. It's there a lot. And Paul was not embarrassed about it like many are today. And I think this is why. Would God be morally perfect or good if he did not react adversely to evil? Would you like that? We wouldn't like that about a parent who did not react adversely to evil regarding their kid. They would protect, they would shield, they would cover. In fact, when the evil is in their kid, they would address it. Why? Because it destroys lives. It would destroy their life in time. God would not be morally perfect or good if he did not react adversely to evil. Another aspect of this is that God's wrath reveals his absolute hatred of sin. Why? Just because he decided? No, because it's against his very nature and being. God is holy. Sin is like like a defilement. Sin is like an infection. And God is utterly pure. That thing is absolutely sin is absolutely counter to who he is he isn't just a nitpicky it's like if you had no sickness in this room whatsoever no virus whatsoever how many does it take to defile it one god will allow no sin in him there's none there's absolutely none So that when God says something true and good, you know he'll finish that. It's that's where he stands. That's who he is. He's not just against sin because he feels like it, it's against his very nature. He is holy, and sin is utterly contrary to his nature and being. And his wrath is always judicial. What does that mean? Cruelty has no part in the wrath of God. He doesn't get mad because he loses control. He's not like me, where I can get mad. I'm tired, I'm hungry, I'm just selfish. I have a, you, know, a, a fallen nature, and I get, you know, selfish about things. Not God. There's no cruelty. there's no losing control. His wrath is judicial. It will address an issue. He's, he has wrath against sin. And he will administer his wrath to take care of that, not just to be, to get even, not just to be cruel. That's not God. Cruelty has no part in it. We are living in the year of God's favor when grace and mercy is being extended to sinners. But there's a point where sinners who persist in their rebellion against the righteousness of God, there's a point where they will have what they choose. As you've probably heard this saying, in the Lord's Prayer it says, um, your kingdom come, your will be done. Not my will, your will be done. And there's a point when people have put it this way that God will say you wanted your will you get it you get to have your will but he's extending mercy and grace he's reached the people in this room and I think and it, and it defies sort of what was expected that you would be in the backyard crying out to God after a lifetime of living like a fool and same thing for me where it's like there's a point where it's like, how did that guy get saved? Why him? Why did God's grace break in? Something broke, and it's like, I want that more than I want my own foolish will and the destruction that comes along with it. God's wrath against sin and rebellion will be administered. But at this time, it's still the hour of his grace and mercy where people have a choice and can turn. It says there's a point in the book of Revelation where people will hide themselves in the mountains and say, cover us from the wrath of the Lamb. they'll, They'll cover themselves. It's like, oh, this is what that was about. And we rejected it, rejected it, rejected it. Now there's no time left. And now they're hiding themselves from the wrath of God. Just because he's out of control? No, he's not. But because now the time has passed. To make that turn. God, don't wait that long. If you haven't, now's the time. Here's the other side of that double-edged sword. That's the side that is just seems so sharp and contrary to our humanistic perspective. But here's the other side of that double-edged sword. For those who have responded to Christ by faith, like the Thessalonians... Like many of you, his return from heaven will be the fulfillment of his promises. It says he delivers us from the wrath of God. We, we will have no part of it. It won't be ours. And we need not fear the wrath of God. The deliverance of those who've trusted in him has already been secured. We won't ever have to fear the wrath of God. Every wrong will be made right. All injustice will cease and be dealt with. What a glorious day that will be. All of it. In human courts, sin and selfishness, lies, deception, imperfection, they spoil justice. They corrupt justice. They prevent justice in many cases. And righteousness and this world is dissonant something's not right we know it's not right it never will be right as long as you know God is not here ruling and his kingdom is not set up but that day is coming there's this this world is fallen sin infected I know it sounds really kind of dark to say those things but let's be real this world is corrupted. God's kingdom is not. It's, I, we can't even fathom what it would be like to not have any sin in us or around us. We, that's just unfathomable to us. But it will be. When God's Son, Jesus, returns from heaven, the ingloriousness of this world will pass away. And come to an end. And we will. Rejoice. At perfection. That he brings with him. That's why. These people. It says they turned to God from idols. To serve a living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven. These. This church. These new believers. Paul was saying. This thing that kind of gets forgotten. The. The best of our life with Christ is not here. I I know I say this a fair bit, but I think we're in an hour that we need to hear it because there's a lot of preaching that even talks about how God wants to bless us. And I say, yes, he absolutely does. But not all of that blessing is going to be in this life. In fact, this is like scratching the surface because untold ages will go by when we're with him in glory. And it'll, I don't know how that'll be, if we'll even, rem, you know, have much remembrance of it. It's like, I'll, I'll meet up with Rose. Uh, in heaven it says we won't marry, but I'll pass her on the street. <laughs> and say, hey, remember when we were married and you were such a sinner? And so... <laughs> and she'll, she'll you know, yeah, yeah. and and she'll say oh and you were such a blessing john i was so so no this this life is like just scratching the surface it's going to be glorious forever forever no sin and no temptation to sin And no deceiver going around saying, oh, Kim, did you hear that thing about John? John is this or that and gossip and this and this sin and that sin. No, an insecurity, there will be none of it. Perfection. So these people are waiting for the Son of God from heaven. It's not like, oh, I, I want him to bless me so I can have such a great life here. I do want to be blessed but there's something far greater coming, amen? amen? Let's be that flourishing people of God. Amen. Let's be that flourishing people of God who know we're rescued from the wrath of God and we're waiting for him to return from heaven when all that is perfect will be the, the present reality, will be in that reality forever. Wow.